Since the time I was a small boy, I have talked to myself a lot. It's always helped to talk to someone who listens so sympathetically and who understands so well. My father, Jesse Hart, died of a brain tumor while I was still an infant. My stepfather, Ralph, the only father I had ever really known, was killed in an auto accident when I was 13. His death was the collapse of my world, the end of the world as I knew it. Sometimes in the late evenings, sad and lonely, I would walk up and down, up and down the country road that ran in front of our little ramshackle house, talking to myself, mainly in a dark language about how everything, everything in this world, in the end, comes to absolutely nothing. I was, I guess, an adolescent existentialist before ever hearing that word or knowing what it meant. I realize now, of course, that I was alone only in the sense that I was alone with the alone, alone with God, so that in all my soul talk, although I didn't know it at the time, I was really praying. Now, here I sit, a solitary old man in this room, talking to myself, pondering, praying, reflecting on some of the things I have learned or think that I have learned, some of the essential convictions that have taken root and formed deep in me since beginning my long-ago walk on Lahore Road. So in the end, this series will be, in the words of the Apostle, the reason for the hope within me. One of the first things I think I have discovered not necessarily first in chronology, but certainly among a number of first in, in importance, is the significance of what scholars call epistemology, a, a big word simply meaning the science of knowing, the knowledge of knowledge, how we know what we know or how we know what we think we know. Jennifer Nagel, professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, makes this right-on observation in her excellent little book, Knowledge, a very short introduction. She says, the hunt for knowledge has never been easier. Hard questions can be answered with a few keystrokes. Our individual powers of memory, perception, and reasoning can be double-checked by distant friends and experts with minimum effort. But these new advantages don't always protect us, she says, from an old problem. If knowledge is so easy to get, so is mere opinion, and it can be hard to spot the difference. A website that looks trustworthy can be quite biased. World-renowned authorities can follow misleading evidence down the wrong track. Illusions can distort what we ourselves seem to see, hear, or remember. What at first seems like knowledge can turn out to be something less than the real thing. Reflecting on the nature of inquiry, we can find ourselves wondering exactly what this real thing might be. What is real knowledge? How are we able to know anything at all? These questions are ancient ones, writes Nagel, and the branch of philosophy 
dedicated to answering them is epistemology. The epistemology of the Western world and to which I was born uh, originated in the historical period known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. That period in history, beginning around the early 17th century, in which there was a radical reorientation of philosophical, political, and scientific thought. The Age of Enlightenment, or reason, grew through the proverbial snowball effect. Small advances in science and technology and medicine gathered momentum and resulted in still larger discoveries, so that now technological changes are so constant and so fast. It's kind of like the character Charlie Cruz says in the television series Life. It feels like, says Charlie Cruz, like living in the future. When its extraordinary achievements are considered, it is no wonder that Enlightenment thinkers throughout Europe and North America developed a religious-like faith in the ability of reason and scientific methodology alone to solve all human problems, answer all questions, and resolve all human dilemmas. The age of reason, the Enlightenment, of course, uh, has not proven to be entirely enlightened or rational or benevolent as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the destruction of the environment from the uh, unsuspected and unintended consequences of science and technology, uh, or as the carnage of modern warfare and, and, and the rise of new lethal diseases, pandemics, epidemics, all demonstrate, rather than enlightenment thinking, placing humanity in charge of its own bright destiny, we seem instead to be speeding down the road of self-annihilation with mindless determination. When we think of the Age of Enlightenment and its dawning, it is impossible not to think of Sir Francis Bacon, 1561 to 1626, Bacon, it can be argued, was the father of the scientific method, making careful observations and forming and testing hypotheses based on those observations. Bacon insisted that knowledge is acquired through the use of a skeptical methodology by which scientists seek to avoid misleading themselves, by which scientists seek to remain objective in their investigations. Eventually, this filtered down to ordinary people in everyday life as a maxim, don't believe anything you can't touch, taste, feel, hear, or smell. Bertrand Russell, the the mathematician and uh, famous British positivist philosopher, once said, what cannot be known by the scientific method, what cannot be known by the scientific method, cannot be known. A perspective that Bacon, a Christian, would not have entirely endorsed. I don't know that much about cultural change in Europe, 
but at least in, in the United States, another epic shift in how people think and, and how human consciousness forms has been taking place for several decades. There is now considerable and increasing doubt that even with the hard sciences, complete objectivity, as suggested by Bacon and developed by modern scientists, is ever a real possibility. Quantum physics now questions whether cause and effect, as we have always conceived it, whether cause and effect, as we have always conceived it, really exist. The question of epistemology in our contemporary world, where enlightenment thinking is increasingly understood as having led humanity down a long, dark, blind alley, is then one of serious significance. Michael Planyi, the modern scientist and thinker who made important theoretical contributions to physical chemistry, economics, and philosophy, argued that the sort of positivism which grew out of the Enlightenment, the idea that information derived from our senses and interpreted through reason and logic forms the exclusive source of all certain knowledge, is a false account of knowing, of epistemology. If he is correct, as many, including myself, believe, then the Enlightenment, the age of reason, was in certain respects mistaken, or at least seriously incomplete in its account of how we know. Polanyi said that even in the exact sciences, the notion of complete objectivity is a delusion. A knower does not stand apart from the universe, but participates personally within it. Our intellectual skills, he said, are driven by passionate commitments that motivate discovery and validation. Polanyi thought that a great scientist not only identifies patterns, but also, often unaware, chooses the significant questions likely to lead to a successful explanation of those patterns or the resolution of a problem. So he noted that Copernicus arrived at the Earth's true relation to the sun, not as a consequence of following a mechanical method, but by the greater ascetical satisfaction Copernicus felt from seeing the universe from the, from the perspective of the sun rather than that of the Earth. The knower does not stand apart from the universe, but participates personally within it. Or there is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that somehow the observer actually affects the location and velocity, me velocity measurements of subatomic particles. Such a notion is mind-boggling, both in its mechanics and in its philosophical implications. There are a number of reasons for not simply the difficulty, but the impossibility of achieving complete objectivity. But one of the most serious and obvious 
is that traces of personal bias are always a distorting factor. As the great French philosopher of the 20th century, Paul Ricoeur, noted, there is no philosophy without presuppositions. Consequently, we always begin with some sort of understanding. We always begin with some sort of understanding that directs our thinking about whatever we are investigating. If I understand a miracle as that which overturns or contradicts or defies the laws of nature, my investigation of miracles will lead to an entirely different set of conclusions than if I understand miracle in its biblical sense as that which astounds and in that astonishment points away from itself to the reality of God. In both cases, I am personally bound up in the inquiry, and in neither orientation is there anything like the kind of complete objectivity the Enlightenment envisioned or hoped for. That sort of objectivity is simply a delusion. What is emerging in our postmodern world, then, is a way of thinking an understanding of epistemology that is not a rejection of scientific methodology or of reason and logic or of good evidential procedures, but that transcends them in recognizing ancient wisdom as a valid and legitimate path to knowledge. What thinkers like Michael Polanyi, as a highly respected scientist and Abraham Maslow is one of the most often uh, cited psychologists in the 20th century and a researcher, and the brilliant French philosopher Paul Ricoeur all came to, was that the Western world has become lost in an epistemological desert, a waterless land of criticism, meaning, of course, uh, criticism not as negativity or uh, as mere disapproval, uh, maybe unreasoning, unreasonable disapproval, but a, but as a thoughtful judgment based on the merits and faults of something, the way we think, uh, the, the way we evaluate, the way we critique and analyze is far more complex and often far more flawed than we imagine. In The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a book and later a movie of wonderful satire, irony, and humor. It is explained to Arthur Dent, the hitchhiker from Earth, that he needs to put a babble fish in his ear. This will enable him, or anyone with a babble fish in his or her ear, to understand instantly anything said in any form of language throughout the universe, that something as mind-boggling useful as the babblefish could have simply evolved over time by chance has strangely and weirdly enough become, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, the basis of a galactic argument that God 
does not exist. The argument goes like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the babblefish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance. It proves you exist, so by your own argument, you don't. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. This, I think, points to one of the difficulties with the basic Enlightenment approach to the search for knowledge. And that is, it has turned out to be reductionistic. In many ways, it has been more advantageous, more fruitful in the pursuit of technological and scientific knowledge, but narrower and shallower in the quest for the transcendent. The more sophisticated, analytical, and refined theology and philosophy have become, the more abstract, obscure, and divorced from real life and common sense they are. Thinking in abstraction, thinking in abstractions that grow ever more abstract and in meticulous analysis that becomes mere speculation, in rarefying the meaning of words and in the fanciful invention of new ones and in confining knowledge to syllogistic logic and materialistic processes, theologians and philosophers boil the meaning out of life, and God disappears in the background noise of academic chatter. Maybe someone just needs to stick a babblefish in their ear. Believing that everything, that the study of every subject, indeed of believing divine mystery, can be studied as if it were an object, a thing, in thinking that ultimate reality can be broken down into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller parts and then reconstituted as an understandable whole, theologians and philosophers reduce everything to nothing, completely collapse the highest levels of philosophical, poetic, and spiritual existence into the lowest levels of insignificance and triviality. God, life, and humanity disappear in a puff of logic. What people like Paul Ricoeur, Abraham Maslow, Michael Polanyi, and others have argued is that we need to be able to think critically. We need to be able to spot errors, to identify inconsistencies, uh, to recognize to, to recognize intellectual difficulties and, and to understand the connections that need to be made, but to do so without being overwhelmed by any of it. And what is needed, they each thought, is a way of thinking, an, an epistemology that is restorative, that is life-giving. My own personal quest has been for knowledge that does not dismiss good scientific procedures and research or the canons of rationality or evidential procedures, but one which transcends them. So in the next episode, I hope to begin with what Paul Ricoeur called post-critical thinking, a, a way of thinking uh, 
an approach, a way of interpreting life and reality and biblical texts that leads to what he intriguingly called the second naivete.